All right, I want to revisit this morning a familiar part of the Christmas story, the account of the birth of the Lord Jesus, his entrance into this world. Uh, We studied this uh, back in 2010 as part of our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I don't expect that everyone here would remember what I was teaching 13 years ago. I hope you remember something of it as I revisit it, Uh, but if not, it'll be a good reminder for you and for those who weren't here then. I hope this will be a blessing for you as well. So let's read the story of the what is uh, described in the ESV translation as the visit of the wise men. And that is, of course, the first 12 verses of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. Let me go ahead and read the account and then we'll, we'll break down some key points in it this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And here he quotes, Matthew quotes from the prophet Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when we covered this and when we looked at it, Uh, as we were working our way through Matthew uh, those 13 years ago, uh, I made an emphasis on distinguishing between the facts and the traditions of this story. Um, The fact is that on the night that Jesus was born, there were people there besides Joseph and Mary. Uh, Jerry referenced them in our uh, communion uh, time this morning. There were shepherds from the surrounding region that the Lord sent an angel to appear to and sent them to the manger to actually see Jesus the night that he was born. Uh, So 
the only individuals that were there that night were Joseph, Mary, and the shepherds. Uh, traditionally, the, the magi, the wise men, are included in that scene, but they weren't actually there that night. Um, how can we know that with certainty? There's, there's a number of reasons, but just look in verse 1 of chapter 2. It's pretty straightforward and simple, and it just still amazes me after all the years of studying God's Word how obvious details can be disregarded and ignored in the formation of traditions around those stories. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So did they come the night that he was born? Did they come just a little bit before to make sure they'd be there for the night of his birth? It says very clearly he, they came after he was already born. We'll talk in a minute about how long after um, that they actually arrived uh, to see him because of course they did see him by the end of the, the account here uh, that uh, we read just a moment ago. But they weren't there that night. Uh, so does it really matter that they were there that night versus they were not there that night? And I would say it matters only in this sense. It matters if we are reading the text as if it's actual history rather than um, a story that has kind of a, an emotional, uh, traditional, ceremonial kind of impact on our, on our awareness, but not an actual real event of history. Uh, you know how it is in, in, in Christmas time. I don't, have to, I don't have to go over this in any kind of detail, but there's all kinds of Christmas stories other than the birth of Jesus. You know, there's the story of Santa Claus. There's the story of the reindeer. There's the story now of uh, Buddy the elf that came down from the Northlands. Um, you know, Santa's workshop. There's all kinds of stories. The little drummer boy. There's stories that have arisen around the Christmas story. And none of us, I think, I hope, you know, as you're watching the movie Elf, I hope you don't take that as, okay, this, this really happened. This is a real event of history. Um, we all understand those are just made up stories, but they're, they're, you know, there's a sentimentality that gets attached to those stories. Uh, this is real history, and it's super important that we are able to distinguish between actual history and, and the, the traditions that, that kind of grow and become encrusted on top of history. Because of why he came, and we focused on this in our uh, study time last Sunday, uh, we, as we looked at 10 key reasons for why Jesus actually arrived in this world. But it was a real birth and there was a real scenario and a real chronology of events, one thing following another. And so the wise men were not there that night, neither were they as other traditions have arisen around the story of the wise men, neither were they as far as we know, like you see a depiction up here, it's kind of small, I don't know if those in the back can see it. Can you see the in between the trees, can you see the depiction of the three, um, the three guys riding camels back here? Um, do, how many wise men were there? Were there three? Possibly. Um, why, why did the tradition become hardened around the number three? It's because the gifts that were offered 
when they finally did arrive, um, they offered gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so traditionally, the three gifts are associated with three wise men as, as though each one of the wise men brought their own gift, one bringing gold, one bringing frankincense, one bringing myrrh. We do not know from the actual account of the actual event how many there were. We know there were a minimum of how many? Minimum of two because they are wise men, it's plural. There's at least two of them involved. There are some traditions that say there, are, there were as many as 50 that arrived. We don't know the number that arrived, but we do know that there was more than one. Uh, were they riding camels? No one has any idea. They could have been riding camels, they could have been riding horses, they could have been riding donkeys, they could have been walking. Uh, that's an unimportant uh, detail in the story apparently because it's not mentioned anywhere in the text and of course they did not arrive at the manger scene where did they arrive eventually as we'll see in um, the latter part of the story they arrived in the city of Bethlehem but the account of how they got there is an important part of our story I just want us to, to consider this though as we go through uh, the details that are ahead of us this morning uh, as real history. There was a, there's a movie that just came out uh, in the last few weeks. I had originally been very interested in seeing it, and then when I read this account of how the movie was actually made, I lost all interest in seeing it. I may eventually look at it when it comes on TV, but I just lost interest in going to the theater to see it. Uh, it's one of my favorite directors that directed the movie, but it's a story of Napoleon. Have any of you heard of the Napoleon movie that just recently came out? Maybe a few of you have seen it. Uh, the reason I lost interest, I, number one, I'm a big history buff. I like to read history. I'm interested in history. Certain parts of history interest me more than other parts, but um, I was interested in, in seeing it from that standpoint until I read the account of the director's own description of how he made his movie. And basically he said, I, I didn't really care about the history. I, I just, I, I thought the character was fascinating and I decided to make a story around my own impressions of that character. And the, you know, he was challenged by some of the interviewers. Why did you say that Napoleon did this? Or why did you fail to say that Napoleon did that? And he essentially said, the history doesn't matter. All that matters is my impression of the character. And so this is my presentation of that character. So I, I just want you to understand that what we're reading in the text is not like that. It's not just Matthew's impression of the story and he's just monkeying with the facts according to the story that he wants to tell. He's telling real events as they really happened and we're to uh, take the significance of them in that context. So for this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna just ask four questions and answer them from the text. And the four questions are who were the Magi? Uh, where did they come from? When did they arrive and why? What's the why behind their journey? So who were they? They're introduced here in uh, verse one of chapter two as behold, wise men from the east. Now that's the key phrase, wise men from the east, but it's a translation. And I'll, I'll, I think I've got here on the, uh, the overhead the more literal translation of what Matthew actually wrote. He didn't write wise men from the east. What he wrote was, behold, magi from the dawn. 
arrived. It's really interesting to me the way he chose to uh, identify them. I'll talk for a moment about Magi, but he uses a word picture to describe the direction from where they came. Normally you would say, okay, they came from this nation, this kingdom, this specific city, this specific location, but he generalizes it as Magi from the dawn, and which direction is the dawn? The east. And that, of course, that's why we have in our translation, Magi from the east, I think the translators looked at the word, it's really literally rising of the light or dawn. Uh, I think they looked at that and said, well, people might be confused if we say they're from the dawn. So we're just gonna say a direction on the actual um, map. We're gonna say from the east to just make it more clear. But I think there's a hint here in why Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit chose to describe them as coming from the dawn because their arrival is signifying the dawn of a new beginning. And it's a new beginning, not just for that specific day, it's a new beginning as we know and as we understand for the world. It's a, a new dawning of a light that has entered the world that had never entered the world in that way through all of human history leading up to this point and never again would the world be the same after the arrival and the dawning of this light. Now they're called magi. This is a, a term of art. This is a, a, a technical description of who they actually were. And it's not commonly focused on, but we still use a form of that word in our culture today. It doesn't mean the same thing, but we still use the word today. Where do we use the word today? Magician. These were magicians. Um, but magician in the ancient sense, not magician in the, in the modern sense. In the modern sense, you go to Las Vegas, you, you go see a stage show, there's some guy that is um, you know, really adept at sleight of hand or uh, you know, doing some kind of trickery in order to fool your perception of what's actually happening. That's not what these guys were doing, but that concept originated and traces its origins back to a very ancient time in history. They were actually astrologers. Uh, you could describe them as astronomers, meaning they were students of the stars, but the astrology aspect has some, some connection here because they saw not just as, as modern day astronomers look at the stars and see just material, physical, bodies of gas that are located in different parts of the known universe, they saw the stars and attached and understood that they had some spiritual significance in their placement and some purpose behind that placement, meaning there is a, a guiding hand even in the arrangement of the stars from the perception of those of us on the earth that can observe them and make some sense of that arrangement. Now, modern day astrology has of course corrupted that original concept and I don't wanna get into a whole thing of, of uh, making sure you don't misunderstand that I just wanna mention that these are not exactly like modern day astrologers and they're not exactly like modern day astronomers, but there's some mix of those two concepts. Now, were they kings? We three kings of Orient are, and we all know the tradition and the story. It's, it was 
several hundred years later, after the actual birth of Christ, that the tradition about these men arose and they became identified as kings rather than magi and they became identified even in their number of three and they were even named in tradition. The names given to them later, and this is hundreds of years later, were uh, Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar uh, were were they named those names? Absolutely not. I'm, I'm certain of that. Uh, we don't know their names. Their names aren't significant. But their role is in that they are identified clearly as magi. So where do we get the concept of magi? Uh, I'd like us to turn back to the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. Now, I also took us through, this was on Thursday night, not on Sunday morning. I took us through a detailed study of the prophecy of Daniel. We have that available, all those recordings. Uh, I don't know, there's something slightly less than 100 recordings, uh, 100 studies we did in the, in the prophecy of Daniel. We went through it in great detail together. Um, but this was years ago as well. And I certainly don't expect you to remember, and some of you weren't even there for that study. So, um, but I do want us to understand the origin point from our understanding of this special role of Magi. They were first introduced in the Bible, not in Matthew's gospel, but here in the prophecy of Daniel. And the timing here is now some over 500 years before the entrance of Christ into the world, before the birth of Christ. We're reading from chapter one. I don't have time to fill in the whole detail, but what's happened here is this is a, this is a, a conquest of Israel by the Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar. The reason Israel has been conquered is because Israel has been in a hardened rebellion against the Lord for generation upon generation. And finally, the Lord brings judgment upon his own covenant people and he allows the Babylonians, he even raises up the Babylonians and brings them as his own disciplinary measures against his own covenant people and they are conquered, and many of them are carried away, those that survived the conquest, they're carried away into captivity into Babylon. The story here focuses on four young men, Daniel being the chief of those four young men, and how they are integrated into Babylonian society, and specifically, these four were chosen to be integrated into the royal court. They're going to become servants of the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. But we'll read from verse 20, as they've undergone a testing process by the, the chief steward in charge of these young men. And we have this account in Daniel 1.20, speaking about these four young men. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all, better than all the magicians, that can be shortened to represent what we call the magi, all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, meaning, he was there for a long time, even through the eventual conquest of Babylon by the Persians. He remained in this category of service to the king. 
Now, turn, if you would, to chapter 2. And we're going to pick up at verse 46. So something's happened in the first 45 verses of chapter 2. What's happened is the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has had a dream. It's a spiritual dream. It's a deeply troubling dream. And he is so troubled by it that he needs to find answers as to its meaning. And so he calls for all of the magi, all of the wise men of his kingdom, to come and explain his dream to him, but he's given them an exceptionally difficult test, really an impossible test. The test is not just tell me my dream, you know, what, I, what my dream means, but he says, just so that I can trust your interpretation of my dream, I want you to tell me what I actually dreamed. And I'm not telling you what it is. You tell me what I dreamed, then I'll believe what you have to say about the meaning of my dream. Um, of course, none of the Magi could do such a thing. But Daniel steps forward and essentially says, give me time to pray and we'll see. You know, I, I belong to a God who is in charge of dreams and visions. And we'll see whether the Lord uh, gives me uh, understanding as to what you have dreamed. He gives him overnight, and along with his three companions, they pray. The Lord reveals to Daniel what it is the king dreamed and reveals to him the meaning of his dream. That whole dream has to do, of course, with the giant statue, which we won't go into, but the, the, the giant statue that had spiritual significance in a prophetic sense. Now we're picking up in verse 46. As Daniel has now not only told him what he dreamed, but what it means... This is the king's response. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then, and verse 48 connects directly to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect. That simply means, uh, using a Flintstones term, the Grand Poobah. Some of you don't aren't old enough to be familiar with Grand Poobah or the significance of it, but it basically means he's the high muckety-muck that's in charge of everything beneath that. It says he made him, it says he made him the chief prefect over who? Over all the wise men of Babylon. All right, so Daniel, who was Daniel? I mean, Daniel was a prophet of God, yes. But in terms of his royal position at the court of Babylon, and this carried over as he was then transitioned into the royal court of Persia as Persia conquered Babylon. He was the chief of the Magi. So when the Magi later arrive at the city of Jerusalem, with their desire to visit and to bring honor to and gifts to the newborn king of the Jews, the question is, how in the world 
with those men who arrived seeking the newborn king, how would they know to seek him? What, what was it that stirred their journey to begin with? And let's, let's uh, actually, I do want to head back to Matthew, but let's get one more passage in Daniel uh, before I jump over there. I don't want to miss this. This is now in chapter five. And this is just going to confirm that it's a continuation of what we were reading in chapter two. Uh, reading in chapter five now, there's a new king involved. And we'll read up, we'll read up to uh, verse, we'll start at verse 11. The new king has had his own experience. This is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He's had his own troubling experience. He had a vision. It was really a vision of judgment against himself, uh, a judgment that the Lord was bringing against him and against his kingdom. And he's troubled and he wants to know answers. And so he's asking all of his royal officials, who can explain this experience to me? And this is their response to the king. Verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom. He's, they're referring to Daniel. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel. So Daniel was and remained the chief of the Magi. So when we get to the actual Magi story and wonder, and, and I've heard the Magi story taught so many times and very rarely have heard this question raised, but the question occurs to me as I read the account, how did they know? They saw what that stirred their journey. They saw a star rising in the east. Now, they're students of the skies. They're students of the stars. They're playing, paying close attention to the stars and they see a new star appear in the heavens. And it stimulates them not just to write down notes about, ah, oh, we observed a new star that's appeared in the heavens. We've, we've discovered a new star. That's a, that's a big event, by the way, in, even in astronomy to this day. A new star appears in the heavens. We have telescopes trained on every possible part of the, of the observable universe. And a new star appears, and it's, a, it's a, an event to be celebrated in modern astronomy. But they didn't just make a notation and celebrate the appearance of a star. They attached significance to it. What was the significance that they attached? This is the star signaling that the king of the Jews has been born into this world. Now, there have been many kings of the Jews. What stimulated their journey? This king of the Jews would be a special king even among the line of the kings of the Jews. There had been a long period of time between Daniel chapter two and chapter five, leading all the way up to Matthew chapter two. How many years in between? Over 500 years in between. How many Magi had come to celebrate the birth of a new king of the Jews in those intervening 500 years? How many visits of the Magi had there been to Jerusalem? Zero. 
No, no magi had come from the east. But now suddenly, with this appearance of this new star, they are stirred to come. The question is, why? What stirred them to come? Well, the issue here is that, and we're back in Daniel chapter 9 now. And again, this is me using somewhat of, and I'll, I'll just share with you, the, the text doesn't make this direct link, but I think it's a, it's a valid deductive conclusion. I'm playing a little bit of a biblical Sherlock Holmes role here. I'm linking two facts that are evident in Scripture and clearly one leading to the other. This is from one of the visionary experiences that the Lord gave the prophet Daniel later in his life. And in chapter 9, uh, I don't have time to read the whole context, but this is part of the visionary experience of the 70 weeks, what we call the 70 weeks prophecy. The 70 weeks uh, correspond to, to groups of seven years and how the Lord was giving a layout of history that was going to follow this vision for the next 490 years, what the Lord is giving to Daniel in this vision is a chronology with spiritual connection points of great significance for all of world history and the fulfillment of God's purposes in world history culminating in the arrival of his son. That's the backdrop. And we'll read just one verse out of this prophecy. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall, cut, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, there is... Um, there is in the study of Bible prophecy, and I've identified this several times for us, many times over the years actually, there's a, there's a big divergence among Bible scholars, among, among uh, seminary instructors, among pastors, and among Bible teachers in terms of how to understand and interpret, it, interpret prophecies like this. Uh, one of the actually the, the, the most popular viewpoint, the, the one that's um, most representing most Bible prophecy uh, teachers in our current generation and for maybe the last 100 or so years is the viewpoint known as dispensationalism, which I've addressed many times. In that viewpoint, the person that's being described in verse 26 is a bad guy and the worst of the bad guys they believe this is referring to the Antichrist. Now, I went into great deal, detail that I don't have time to go into this morning when we actually went through this passage in the Daniel study. I will just tell you, you cannot get this verse more wrong than that. To call this character that's being described in verse 26, the Antichrist, when the character being described is actually the Christ, is the worst possible Bible prophecy interpretation mistake you can make. To characterize the Son of God as the Antichrist is to miss the mark completely. 
This is describing the entrance of the Son of God into the world. And he's described here as the prince who is to come. And he's also described as the anointed one. Both are descriptions given to us in this verse. And it's given to Daniel, the chief of the Magi, over 500 years before the birth of Christ. This is not commonly referred to in the studies that are done around uh, prophecies of the entrance of Christ into the world, but this is one of the most important ones of those prophecies. And so what's the connection to the men that arrived in the city of Jerusalem 500 years plus later seeking the birth of the king of the Jews because they saw a star rise in the east from which they came. What's the, what's the connection point? Daniel, who was the chief, meaning he instructed the other magi. Daniel knew there was one singular coming priest of the covenant people of God, not priest, uh, prince, of the covenant people of God, a special prince, a, a, a king to be that would enter the world and that there would be a significant sign that would be attached to that and that significant sign had to do with a special supernatural star that would appear. All right, so what I'm saying is Daniel taught the magi that arrived. Now he was not their personal teacher because there's 500 years in between him being the chief of the Magi and the Magi actually arriving in Jerusalem and eventually in Bethlehem. So how did what he taught 500 years before get to them 500 years later? It was, as, as Jerry had taught us recently, it was passed down from one generation of Magi to another generation of Magi as one of the most important responsibilities of the Magi from the point of Daniel forward, which is to watch for the sign of the arrival of the prince of these people, these covenant people of God in the land of Judea in the city of Jerusalem. All right, our next question, where did they arrive? And of course, Matthew, going back to Matthew, it's very clear, it's laid out in detail for us, we don't have to guess. Now when Jesus, Matthew chapter two, verse one, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Why didn't they arrive in Bethlehem? Because as it originally appeared, the star was simply an indicator that a prince had been born to the Jews, a special prince. And so they traveled from where they originated. We don't know exactly with detail where they originated, but most likely they originated from where we left off in the Daniel story, which was from the kingdom of Persia, which continued to the days of the arrival of Jesus into the world. Uh, Persia, of course, being modern-day Iran, they, they came most likely from that area. There was still a functioning caste of magi that served the kings of Persia in those days. 
and they came to Jerusalem. Why did they come to Jerusalem? Because they expected that the child who was born king of the Jews would be the son of whom? The current king of the Jews. That's the way it works. Princes come from kings. And so they came to Jerusalem knowing that Jerusalem was the capital city. They knew that the king of, of, of that Judean region lived in the capital city of Jerusalem. And they asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The star did not settle over the city of Jerusalem. They, at this point, weren't even seeing the star. The star had risen in the east but apparently, as we're going to see in a few moments, the star had disappeared after its original appearance. But they knew it signaled for them to go and find the king of the Jews, so they journeyed to Jerusalem. But they journeyed not with answers, but with a question. Where is the child? Where is the special prince that we've been waiting for that the star signaled we should now move in our journey to find him? Now... As they asked the question, how did King Herod respond? It stirred him up. It troubled him. It troubled him because, and this is historical background that's not super critical to understand and remember, but he was a, he was a very insecure king. It was a very powerful king. It was a very brutal king, but very insecure in his rule. Uh, he, he anticipated attacks against the continuation of his rule from many directions. Uh, there's a whole history if you're, if you're interested in the story of King Herod, but he had his own children killed, he had his own wife killed, he had many of the servants of his kingdom killed at different points, all because of perceived threats to his, the continuation of his rule. So when he hears a new king of the Jews has been born, and people have come from the east signaling a spiritual significance to that arrival, that, that sparks his insecurity. And then he puts on, you know the whole story, he puts on a pretense of, of, you know what, I want you to go find him and then come and tell me because I want to honor him just like you. And of course, instead of intending to honor him, he's intending to murder him. Uh, but at this point, they arrive asking the question and Herod does the... the the rational thing, and he, as we find in the text in verse uh, four, he assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Scribes of the people are the Bible scholars, the scholars of God's, of God's revealed words, both in the law and the prophets. And he inquired of the Bible scholars where the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And so they, they're familiar with the prophecy of Micah, which identifies the actual specific location of the birth of the Messiah. And they tell King Herod in response to his question, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They're not saying he has been born. They don't know. They just say when he is born, that's where it's going to have to take place. And by the way, this is, if there's no other reason to believe, and there are many, many, many other reasons, but if there's no other reason to believe that only Jesus is the savior of the world, the chosen one, the Messiah, the birth account alone is sufficient to separate him from all others 
that have ever laid claim to that or ever will lay claim to that. The Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. And so he summons the wise men secretly and he sends them on their journey and they leave Jerusalem heading for Bethlehem. It's not a long journey now. It's only about five miles due south of Jerusalem to arrive in Bethlehem. But I want you to notice this in verse nine. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen, which means where has it been? They saw it in the east, about 1,000 miles to the east in Persia. They saw the star. But the star they had seen when it rose now has reappeared as they're leaving Jerusalem. When they were in Jerusalem, they didn't point up to the sky and say, see there, there's the star. The star was not visible at Jerusalem. But as they leave Jerusalem and are heading to Bethlehem, the star reappears. This is, for me, clear and convincing evidence along with one of the details we're about to read that we're not talking about as many have tried to venture, okay, this, the star of Bethlehem, it was probably a, a supernova, you know, which is like the explosion of a star in a distant part of the universe but becomes brighter because of its explosion. Or it's the conjunction of planets. You know what the conjunction of planets are? Planets being lined up in such a way, they're not actually touching each other, but from our observation, it looks like a single point of light, but now it's brighter because it's two or three planets lined up. What's the problem with this detail if it's either a supernova or a conjunction of planets or like even a comet as some have claimed that it might have been. Those things don't appear and reappear. Those things are consistent and constant in the sky. This is a star that's not acting like a normal star. And so they rejoice when they see the star as uh, it says in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. But the star does one other thing which were meant to, to notice the detail at the end of verse nine, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. What does that mean? It went before them. If it's in the sky, it's not going before them. I mean, in the sky in the sense of a supernova, in the sense of a conjunction of planets, in the sense of a comet. It's not going before them. This is a star that's moving in the sky and it's moving in direct relationship to them as they're making this short journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It went before them until it came to rest, meaning it was moving and then it stopped moving. So you could make a case and say, well, a comet moves. It could have been a comet, but comets don't stop moving. They move and they continue to move. They never stop moving. This is a star that moved and then it's a star that stopped and it stopped in one location. Where did it stop? You can make two cases here, but only two are possible. Either it stopped over the entire village of Bethlehem, which is not a huge place, or it stopped specifically over the place where the child was staying. One or the other, it's stopping over a very specific geographic location. That means it's not that high up in the sky. It's not 
out in the universe somewhere. It's directly in relationship to the events that are unfolding on the earth. It rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. All right, when, uh, when did they arrive? So if they came from Persia, which is the most likely conclusion, it's about a 1,000 mile journey. Um, whether you're on a camel, whether you're on a horse, whether you're on a donkey, or whether you're on foot, a thousand mile journey is a little bit more challenging than if you and I were to take a thousand mile journey today. We'd have two basic options. There's actually more than two. We could take a thousand mile journey in a, a, an airplane. We could take it on a train. We could take it on a bus. We could take it in a car, a vehicle of some kind. How long would it take us? Just, you know, if it's a plane, a thousand miles, how long is it gonna take? A couple of hours. And if, and if it's a car, all right, it's gonna take a little bit longer than that, but it's not that challenging, even a thousand miles. For them, they're either on some conveyance like a horse or they are walking. And we're going to give an estimate of, they probably covered somewhere between 10 and 20 miles a day in their long 1,000 mile journey. How long would that take them to arrive? At quickest, let's give them 20 miles a day. That's a long journey to do day after day after day after day after day without break in between. But if they did 20 miles a day, it's gonna take them 50 days, which is approximately two months after the birth, just under two months. If they did 10 miles a day, that's gonna take 100 days, which means it's going to be a little bit over three months. So we find the detail in this one, I've pointed out before, but look down in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men because they didn't return to tell him where the child was, they went home because they'd been warned by the Lord in a dream to do so. He became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. The time of what? The time of when the star had first risen in the east, in Persia, in their observation, which signaled that the Messiah was born. The star rose the night he was born. And so we have some estimate. They arrived somewhere between, at, at earliest, two months after his birth, and at latest, two years after his birth. Probably wasn't a full two years. Most likely Herod was being uh, shrewd and giving himself some wiggle room to make sure there, were no, there was no newborn king that was going to escape his execution of the, of the newborns in the region of Bethlehem. And so somewhere between two months and a little bit over a year, the, the Magi have now arrived. When they arrive, where do they arrive? Verse 11, Matthew 2, 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. So where aren't they? They aren't at the inn and they aren't at the manger, the manger which is in the stable behind the inn for the, the, the care of the animals of the travelers that are staying in the inn. They are now in a house. 
So we're at least, bare minimum, two months after their arrival in Bethlehem, and Joseph has made the decision that he's not going to take his family with his newborn back to Nazareth. He's going to remain in Bethlehem, and he's arranged for a house. He could have rented the house, or he could have purchased the house. We don't know, but they're in a house, their own house now, as the Magi actually arrive on the scene. The last question to answer is the most important one. It's really the the culmination of this whole story of the journey of the Magi. Why have the Magi arrived? And the answer, as put on the overhead, is they've arrived in order to kiss the king. The text tells us in verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. Fell down is not just like collapsed to the floor. They were, it's not that they were exhausted from their journey. They fell down in an act of humility. It was called prostration. And it was the normal posture for inferiors to adopt at the first meeting of a great superior in the person of a, of a royal figure. So they have arrived at the house of a newborn king. And they know from 500 years of instruction tracing all the way back to Daniel that this is a special king among kings born into this world. And so they prostrate themselves before this king. And the word worship, they prostrated themselves and worshiped him is not exactly, it can be used in the same way that we refer to our worship of the Lord, like as we did this morning and as we're continuing to do in our study of his word today. But it is a word which literally translated means to kiss. That's what's actually happening when your heart is worshiping the Lord. It means, it's a combination of two words, to prostrate and to kiss. Not a kiss of, of uh, some kind of romantic attraction. This is a kiss of submission, a kiss of recognition, and a kiss of honor for the one who is superior in every way to yourself. And so they prostrated themselves before this child and they kissed him. The, the common practice was not a kiss on the lips in this, in this subservient uh, role of kissing or expression of kissing. It was usually a kiss on the back of the hand to prostrate, to take the hand of the one that is, that is being so honored and to kiss the back of the hand. It was a recognition of you are greater than myself. Now this is a biblical theme all the way back to let me read from one of God's inspired worship songs in the book of Psalms, Psalm 2. I don't have time for the whole song, but it's a song of, it's what's known as, even among the great inspired worship songs of the book of Psalms, 
you've heard me identify that there's a special category among these songs known as messianic psalms. These are prophetic songs, songs that the focus is on Christ, but hundreds of years before his arrival into the world. And this is one of those songs. The whole song is really a description, not of the birth of Christ, interestingly. It's a song describing the ascension of Christ, his return to heaven after having accomplished his great mission. But it ends with this exhortation in verse 12. This is how the song culminates. The picture is the Son of God has come into this world. He's offered himself as a sacrifice to fulfill the mission of God. And now he's returned triumphant in his resurrection to heaven, to his heavenly Father, and to the throne of God. And God has seated him at his right hand. And now attention is turned to the inhabitants of the earth. What are we to do with this one who has accomplished all of this? The exhortation is, verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This child that has been born into the world, but a special child, a special prince, a special king, he is now seated upon the throne of God. And having been seated upon the throne, all the inhabitants of the earth have two options and only two available to them. You can live life on your own terms in spite of the fact that he has done all that he has done and he is now seated upon the throne of heaven itself, you can continue to live life on your own terms. And if you do so, you will evoke his righteous reaction to your stubborn arrogance and you will encounter his wrath, which will be soon kindled. Or you can be among the blessed, those who take refuge in him and they do so by prostrating themselves before him and if allowed taking his hand and kissing his hand to say you are the chosen one you are the king of kings the lord of lords you are superior to me and i bow before you let's pray father god i want to thank you for the opportunity to revisit a very familiar story this morning. And I pray that our hearts would take away some of the, the most significant details of what we were reminded of this morning. And I pray that they, those truths, those details of real history would have their intended impact on each one of our hearts and that each person here would be counted among those who are blessed because they have taken refuge in him. I thank you for that grace. It's only by your grace that we find ourselves in your presence, able to bow before you and able to kiss the son with a kiss of recognition and honor and glory. We thank you. Blessed be your name this morning. Amen. God bless everyone.